this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi everyone and welcome to KGRA Digital Broadcasting. Our interview with Graham Rendell kicks off the show this week. Graham is an author, researcher and also one of my friends and colleagues from UAP Media UK. Graham, welcome to the show. Hello Andy, it's good Good to be here, thanks. Fantastic, almost like we're doing this for the very first time, isn't it? Uh, and listen, we're making a bit of a change and special treatment for you this week, Graham. You are kicking off the show, Dan will be joining us after this interview and we'll break that down a little bit as well. Graham, you have released a very popular book in the last couple of weeks online. I'm going to hold up a copy of it here. For those that may or may not have seen, we have this absolute beauty. Look at the weight to that as well. I like a weighty book. Um, We have UFOs before Roswell, European Foo Fighters, 1940 to 1945. You've got the foreword there by the wonderful Mr. Sean Cahill as well. Graham, before we get to discussing the book, tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in UFOs. Yeah, so I've been an aircraft enthusiast for about the last 45 years, maybe even 50 years getting on for now. My mum used to buy me uh, airfix kits of model aircraft when I was really young, just to keep me quiet. And my interest in aircraft um, went on from there. I also had an interest in science fiction from an an early age. Uh, I got a UFO book because my mum thought it was a science fiction book. Uh, It turned out to be fact, obviously. So uh, that's how I got kickstarted into the world of UFOs. And um, about the same time, I was also interested in World War II as well. So I got an interest in German secret weapons. All those three things came together um, with this book. And we discussed recently on one of our road trips to Preston, uh, your, your travels that you've been on. And one of your previous books was based all around Siberia, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. The first uh, book I wrote uh, back in February this year, or the first one I released rather, it was about my travels around northeastern Siberia in uh, June and July uh, 1992. So this was six months after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and it was a, a very, very strange time when you could get round by bribing people, basically, um, you know, dodging bureaucracy and all the rest of it. So I, I spent a few weeks uh, going around uh, a strange part of Russia, taking pictures of very, very unusual aircraft and very, very unusual polar settlements. Well, hopefully that'll explain a little bit of why you've chosen to write a book based on events that happened now 80 years ago. And that's that's a lot of information for events that are so old, essentially. Now, given we're looking at so many events like the Tic Tac for 2004 and the obviously Nimitz-Princeton, there's the USS Omaha events and all this other stuff that's really modern. What's got you writing the book based on events from way back when? I've always had this kind of fixation with um, why the modern ufology always seems to start in 1947. I used to read books back in the 70s and the 1980s where you you would see the chronology of um, you'd have the mystery airships in the 1890s, you'd have the ghost aircraft in the 1920s and 30s, and then they would just skip over World War II straight to the ghost rockets of, of 1946 and to Kenneth Arnold and Roswell in 1947. And there was always this period of time which I was really interested in, World War II. And it was, well, where are the reports from there? You know, there were lots of people around, um, you know, lots of kind of detection equipment, radar, you know, people just watching the skies. So why weren't they seeing things? Why aren't these things being recorded? So when I started to hear back then a few stories, that's really piqued my interest. And as time's gone on, I've found a few more and a few more. And I got to the point where I just wanted to dig in and try and find stories which hadn't been told before. 
Um, and that's where the books basically resulted from. Why do you think that was? You mentioned going back to the late kind of 1800s, the mystery airships. And then obviously we had another world war just at the start of the, the 1900s. Why do you think there was that gap that jumped to Roswell, basically? The gap basically stems from um, a kind of false assumption, if you like, that the that Foo Fighters was only a very, very limited phenomenon. So, and it only appeared over a very short period of time and in very specific areas of Europe uh, and the Pacific. And that's down to a, basically a magazine article that appeared in a, in a forces newspaper at the end of 1945. And it had a very small list of cases from one particular squ uh, squadron based in France in, in the, over the winter of 44-45. And that's mostly where, you know, that was the sum total of the information on the Foo Fighters, plus a couple of cases from the Pacific and one during the day um, or, or the daytime raids over Germany. And that was it. For, so for about 50 years, with, a, with the exception of maybe a couple of other cases, that was your sum total of knowledge on the Foo Fighters. So no wonder a lot of authors and researchers over that 50-year period from 45 up to 1995 just given a miss, basically, and just thought, well, it's not worth bothering with. We'll look at much more you know, sexy cases from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, because they demand our time. This is just something you know, that's not worth bothering with. Was it a difficult time for, for anyone to uh, identify anything anomalous potentially in the sky, given the sky itself was filled with German aircraft, Russian aircraft, US, American aircraft, all types of rockets and bombs going off? How does how does one of the time associate something like a UFO that could potentially just be some kind of German rocket? So all, all air crew, when they were going through their basic training, used to get aircraft recognition lessons. It was part of the ground lectures that they were giving you if they, if they were going to be a pilot or they were going to be a navigator or a gunner. It didn't matter who you were going to be in the air. You still got the same kind of knowledge. And then, of course, your experience was, you know, you, you gained experience mission after mission after mission, provided you didn't get shot down or killed, of course. And after a few you know, hours in the air, you got to know what was happening up there. So you could see the type of targeting flares that your own side used to mark targets over Germany, the different kind of green, you know, white, red, uh, yellow, and red flares that they used. But the Germans used decoy ones as well. And they, they got to know what they looked like. And of course, night fighters, when they were um, seen by the gunners, they got to know fairly quickly what they looked like as well, because it, it was fairly obvious. You know, an aircraft coming, firing tracer rounds at you, it looked like an aircraft firing bullets at you, basically. Um, and then, of course, there were all those other types of flares, decoys, and other things that were seen that they, they did get to know what these things were. But also hand-in-hand hand with these were the things that didn't register. And they didn't look like flares. They didn't look like aircraft. They just didn't look like anything on Earth, basically. And these are the things that I talk about in the book. Now, at the time, we're looking a time before Roswell, before the flying saucer flap, what was the general consensus when it came to, to UFOs, flying saucers from other planets? So those words weren't in the lexicon in 1942, 1943, 44, 45. Those things were still three or four years in the future. Everything back then was the expectation that the Germans were going to introduce some kind of new secret weapon. And you know these flare, these kind of lights and these objects that were being seen. That's what they thought they were, and they had um, 
analysis and they were doing lots of work behind the scenes to try and work out what these things were but of course they were doing that in other fields as well so for when they got to know about the v1 flying bomb and the v2 rocket they were looking for information about those as well and of course about german jets and other types of aircraft and guns and rock and, and and you know ships everything anything you can think of they were always looking for new in information on these things before they were put into service but these things were something different because they didn't have anything tangible they didn't have any bits they didn't have any wreckage didn't have any intelligence reports from people in the field, from secret agents, people taking pictures of installations, all the rest of it that happened with all these other things. This was something completely different. Uh, and that made it much more difficult for them to try and work out what was going on. Now, I'm lucky I've got my copy of the book, obviously. I have seen you do a fantastic presentation recently at the Minicon in Preston, where you went through lots of various aspects of the book and, and why you came to some of the conclusions you did. Are there any standout cases you could discuss? Not without going into too much detail, I don't want you to spoil the book for people, but any particular favourite cases from the book? Yeah, I mean, the front cover, which is expertly designed by Dan Zettersrom, your colleague, and also Olaf Rockner in Sweden, that, that's the one there that you're showing there. The, uh, the Wellington bomber, uh, this is a March 1942 case. So we're setting the, 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 the timetable like two, two and a half years before what was the accepted wisdom for the start of the Foo Fighters, which is the end of 1944. Um, now, this was a, actually a bombing raid to Essen in Germany, and the aircraft was coming back. It was a Polish crewed Wellington bomber from the Royal Air Force. And this copper-colored disc kind of light came up behind them. The rear gunner was told to open fire on it because the thought it was a German night fighter. But the bullets went into this thing, and nothing happened. It wasn't shot down, it wasn't damaged, it didn't catch fire. It just sat there and absorbed the bullets, for want of a better phrase, because it didn't do anything. And then, after a little while, it flew around to the, to the wingtip of the aircraft, of the, this twin-engine twin bomber, and sat there for a bit. Um, as they were flying along. And of course, the, the the, that, at that point, the nose gunner could actually open fire on it as well. So at one stage, the, you know, the two turrets, the, the tail turret and the nose turret, were actually opening fire on this light, again to no avail. Then it moved round to a position in front of the bomber and just sat there as the bomber was flying through the sky. Uh, maintaining station a few hundred feet, uh, hundred, uh, feet or yards off, off the, the nose. And then after a while, it just shot off into the distance and never seen again. The crew behind the aircraft concerned had also seen this light, but they didn't want to report it. Um, and of course, when they got back to base, this particular crew, when they tried to report it to the intelligence uh, officers, they were asked, were you drinking? Because that was a standard you know, um, sort of reply to when people said, I've seen something anomalous. Now, do you think all of these events were linked? When we say the Foo Fighters were just describing anomalous lights in the sky that had a range of various movements and behaviours that you wouldn't associate with a, a normal aircraft of the time. Do you think we were seeing one and the same thing spread over various different countries? Or are we seeing a range of phenomena? There's certainly a range involved because the lights are only a very small part of the overall you know, strangeness that happened during World War II. If you look at a lot of the sightings during the day that involved the American bomber crews flying over Germany, they were reporting things that were called swarms of bees or cottonwool balls uh, and some other really strange things, which I go into in, in detail in the book. But that's all based on intelligence reports. Things were actually quoted in, in official reports that went up the chain of command. But then you go to places like Russia and there was a case about something that looked like what they was described as an upturned bathtub. 
So you know, there's there's a whole kind of range of things involved, different sizes. There were aerial torpedoes that were 200 foot long that they were described with portals along the side, and that's another case. So you know, you name it, it's probably you know it's in there somewhere in terms of the list of, of sightings during World War II. So you're looking at a kind of microcosm of what happened for the next you know 50, 60, 70, 80 years, because all the things that happened afterwards, you know, it was all shapes and sizes, colored lights, different types of objects, uh, sizes, shapes. Well, that all happened during the war as well. So, yeah, it's possibly the same thing. I can't say it is for definite, but, you know, if you look at it in the round, then it certainly seems to be that way. I think it's a really interesting time, and some of the stuff I've picked up from the book, like you say, those different descriptions, it's from a place where, like you say, UFOs, flying saucers, flying discs weren't in the language, weren't in the lexicon, as you said. So it was very much down to the individual's interpretation of what they were seeing which is where you can get all these weird and wonderful descriptions from. Like before there was the color blue, you know, how would you describe blue? It would be open to, you know, how you decided what it was. And I think that that's what's really interesting that a lot of these individuals didn't have that preconceived notion. The, there wasn't a lot of science fiction, was there, out and about for people to read and pick up to put into their minds that, well, it's probably aliens or probably some sort of spacecraft. Is that fair to say? It is because if you look at if you chart the the names that they use for this phenomenon or or the things they were seeing, that actually changed over time as well. Because the original reports, when you see from about 1942, when they started doing analysis on the things that were following the aircraft at night, they were just called lights. And the RAF air crew actually called them either the light or the thing. But then as the war progressed and they started getting cases of things that were zigzagging through the skies and chasing aircraft, they became ro called rockets because they were expecting the Germans to be fielding anti-aircraft rockets and other types of rockets. Um, and then when they thought they were going to be fielding jets later on, which actually happened much later than the reports that, um, that I have in the book suggest, the, they called them they started calling them mystery jets, and they started calling them specific types of jets, even though these jets hadn't been fielded by the Luftwaffe at the particular time these reports were being made. So it's it you can you can chart the progress of the name, just how it changes through the years, uh, and, and and that's you know that's quite telling as well because that shows that there's no preconceived idea. Oh, there must be aliens. They must be flying saucers. Again, these these words weren't you know in in their in their kind of like data set. You know, it was just something that was going to happen in the future those words now are in the data set and with the benefit of 80 years of hindsight graham yeah. what do you think the foo fighters were i can't sit here and tell you that andy because i have no idea all i can sort of believe is that there were the exact same thing that people started seeing in, you know, in the late 40s and onwards uh, i just think to say that the modern ufology started in 1947 i think that's possibly inaccurate i think it started earlier and these were the early maybe one of the earliest representations of the things that we're seeing you know we're seeing even today just over the last 80 years um so that's that's why i thought this book was important it just shows people that you know 1947 wasn't the start of everything it might have been like a milestone for a lot of people, but I think you, you should you know, push that history a little bit further back by a few years at least, because there was a lot going on during the war. And what do you think, Graham, just to wrap up, the chances are some of the craft seen were secret weapons made more than likely by the Germans? I've looked into that 
quite deeply in the book. And one of the aims in terms of the book was not only to give people an idea of the scale and, and, the, and the geographic and the time scale during the war about all these sightings, but it was actually to knock on the head some of the kind of myths about what the Foo Fighters were. Because if you look at the internet and you, you read a, you know, a lot of things, you'll see that they're, they're written off as V1 flying bombs or V2 rockets or, or different types of German um, jet fighter or rocket fighter. Now, those can't have been the Foo Fighters for a variety of reasons, which I haven't got time to go into now. But if people read the book, you'll see that the reasoning that I come up with. And it's usually down to geography and times and just the fact that the Germans weren't actually as far forward with a lot of things like anti-aircraft rockets than a lot of people think they were. And sometimes the, people give the Germans too much credit for some of the secret weapons because actually they, they had a lot of things that they designed, but putting them into practice was another thing entirely. Well, Graham, I think you've done a wonderful job in wrestling back the term Foo Fighter from a certain Mr. Dave Grohl. So if people <laughs> want to go and check UFOs before Roswell, European Foo Fighters, 1940 to 1945. And like I say, you get that wonderful foreword by Mr. Sean Cahill in there as well. Graham, how can people follow you and how can they get a hold of the book as well? So my uh, Twitter handle is at border750. There's a link uh, tree reference in my profile so you can see everything I do there. You can look to get to my website where you can see my book for sale. It's also on Amazon. So if you search my name, Graham Rendell on Amazon, you'll find it there. You'll also find the Siberian book there as well. So yeah, that, that's how you can get in touch with me. Brilliant. Graham, thanks for joining us. And folks, there is an extended interview for the, that UFO podcast that will be available round about a few days after this show airs on KGRA. So look for that from about the 25th, 26th of October. And that will be a longer form interview with Graham. And we'll dive into a bit more detail on some of those cases. So Graham, again, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Andy. Welcome to the main portion of the show, everyone. We are on KGRA Digital Broadcasting. Hello to everyone in the chat, and I hope you've enjoyed that interview with the wonderful Graham Rendell of UAP Media UK. Dan is joining me now. How are we doing, Dan? I'm great. Thank you very much. Awesome. We won't say too much about uh, Graham's interview because we have done a longer form interview also with Graham for the main podcast, so you can check that out when it drops it's already available on patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast or you can subscribe to apple premium if you're on apple go to the apple podcast store click click um and i think you click click i'm not sure why i said click click tap 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 click click tap, tap. Touch, touch <laughs> press uh, and you can get a two-week free trial of apple premium as well so you get early access ad free listening and some bonus content too but Graham is great to speak to. Please go and check out his book, UFOs Before Roswell. And it's based on those encounters of the Foo Fighters and UFOs between 1940 and 1945. Some really interesting stuff. Very well researched as well. That book is set, Dan, just before 1947. And as we know, Roswell happened. One of the most, probably the most famous crash or reported crash of a UFO of all time. And it is Crash Retrieval Week. So we wanted to make sure as part of Crash Retrieval Week, we were covering it as thoroughly as possible for the show. Our friend James Iandoli, who is well known for his podcast, Engaging the Phenomenon, and his YouTube channel. Make sure you're checking that out. And, has, and has... also Meta Perspective now as well, where he yes. speaks to a, a kind of, it's a bit more esoteric. So if you're a little bit more leaning towards the woo, I'd really recommend it. 
Cool, yeah, and uh, yep, he's definitely his new uh, new pod there too. He's just done his appearance on uh, Unidentified Celebrity Review a couple of nights ago as well. So go back and check that out. And thanks to Luis, Michael, and Rather B who were on just before us on KGRA. If you're catching this when it premieres as well, um, so yeah, Crash Retrieval Week was James's idea just to get people talking, given all the, the the nuggets that have been dropped into the news over the last couple of months. And Lou Elizondo's talked about it. You know, a few others have too. And it's just to kind of keep things fresh in people's mind. It's an incredibly interesting part of the conversation when it comes to this subject and one that brings up a whole lot of different emotions. We were on Calling All Beings. Uh, well, you, you didn't make it, Dan, um, but I was on with Dan Warren. I was on with James Iandoli, uh, DJ from who hosts the podcast. Nathan was on there as well. And uh, Luis Jimenez joined us too. And that was a really interesting format and discussion. But the, the, the best part for me was when we were talking about the crash retrieval stuff because it really got everybody going. And there was a lot of disagreements and intense discussion. And where would materials be kept? And why would we keep it secret? And DJ was adamant it must be still at Area 51. And some of us thought, no, surely it's been moved by now. But it was a really interesting discussion. And I was looking to just carry that forward. And uh, I wanted to know, Dan, if you first off, before we get to some of the listener questions, have you got any favourite known stories or lesser known stories potentially involving crash retrievals? Yeah, absolutely. So one that's kind of near to, to home for me, uh, Aberystwyth, 1983, farmer uh, Earl Evan uh, woke up in the morning, went outside and found uh, all this debris strewn across his field. Uh, he assumed a plane had crashed, called the authorities, the RAF. Um they said that basically it wasn't anything of theirs. They came with some plainclothes officers, cleared it all up. Um, a few weeks later, they went, oh, sorry, I say they, Irwell and UFO investigator Gary Rowe went back out to the area where it happened um, and found some damaged trees. And amongst the damaged trees, they found a bunch of debris that was kind of structured like honeycomb, um, which now we'd kind of probably look at it and go, you know what, we make that kind of stuff. But back then, it didn't seem so prevalent out there. Um, it has been tested um, and found that basically it wasn't anything that the RAF was using at the time. The Forestry Commission, after they sent this off for testing, they actually cut down that part of the forest, saying it was damaged in a storm, which I thought was a little interesting. Um, and then later on, investigator Gary Rowe, who had the material, and he keeps it under lock and key. So, you know, if you wanted to see it, you contact him and he arranges for it to be brought to the house. Um, but what he actually did was cut up a bunch of the material and made key rings out of it that are kind of like these little circles that say the Welsh Roswell. And he gave them out at UFO conventions. And he says that at one point he was visited by the the men in black, we'll say, who asked for the debris. And he, you know, like, like a brave soul that he has told them, I've actually already sent it out to people. And if you don't stop bothering me, I'm going to tell them all to go to the press. Um, and that's kind of where the story stops. He's, he still has the, you know, the material. It, like I said, it was tested. It was nothing they were using at the time. And like many things, it's a, it's an unknown. Um, you can see the material in an interview on YouTube if you search for Gary Rowe and Sufan. Uh, there is an interview there. I, I'd recommend people do that. But yeah, it's a lesser known one from from the Welsh mid Wales. And I know for a fact, Dan, you told me you want a hold of one of those key rings. So if anyone listening knows, or I mean, if you have one, you want to gift to Dan, 
or you know, if you have uh, found one on eBay or anything like that, give Dan <laughs> a shout and he'll go bidding on it because he's really, really keen to get a hold of something. Please like that. do. I, I'd love to get it, and I'd love to, you know, use use some of the people that we've been lucky enough to talk to over the past year or so, and and maybe get it looked at again. I think that would be great. Dan, you, you mentioned the honeycomb matrix shape what is the big deal with this because this is something that comes up more and more and i've not only seen this this honeycomb structure talked about in terms of physical material but when i've read or watched some interviews that you've kind of sent my way or stuff you've talked about and have more of an interest in where you even talk about the fabric of our reality and you know space time and all that kind of stuff you start to see this honeycomb structure come up more and more what is the deal with that if you can enlighten me a little bit I mean, honeycomb, the shape of it is just a very strong shape. You you know, obviously bees use it for, for their hives. And there's a reason to that. You know, there's, there's not a lot of material there, but it's structurally very strong. So it means you could use it for something like aircraft and it's light and strong. So the plane can float a little better, basically. Um, in terms of it kind of becoming a prevalent shape as you go down the fractals to the you know the bottom of our universe that's a really interesting point and no one really knows why those kind of things are there um but it's definitely worth kind of pointing out and keeping an eye on that this is a, this is a shape that shows up in nature a lot and and if you want kind of just one more where it shows up the um at the top of jupiter i want to say there's a a big storm oh, yeah. it's yeah. actually a hexagon shape again so we're talking fractals that's obviously much bigger than a beehive and you can kind of go down as well it's, it's super interesting no that's really cool um, and my my favorite um crash story is roswell there's just nothing else i remember watching movies when i was a kid growing up um there's that the famous roswell movie uh you know i've seen the documentaries on it and i think the story is still fascinating i think it's one that there's not a whole lot of digging to be done with it anymore in terms of that most of the witnesses are have pa long passed on, many of them. And you're talking to the grandkids of, of people who were involved now who, again, are considerably aged as well. Um, there's not a whole lot, I think, to add to that story. I think the real big next steps on that story would be some kind of official confirmation if we ever did get that, that something did crash. I know Luis Elizondo shared his personal belief on with uh, Thomas Hessler, I believe it was, last night on their podcast that, again, he stressed just his personal belief, no official confirmation, which you can you could read into that what you will, given what his job was. And the People already are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That he thinks Roswell 100% happened. Now, that doesn't say that Roswell was 100% an alien craft that Absolutely. crashed. That just says that something crashed that wasn't the property of the US government and it was recovered. Again, yeah. from there, the story can go off in a whole load of different ways. And we'll kind of come back to that with the, the footage review we do right at the end today as well. Do, but, do you think, can, can I ask you, do you think if Roswell happened now with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and everything like that out there, do you think that, that you know, Jesse Marcel would have just posted pictures straight away to the internet? You know, all the people that kind of came across this debris, would it have gone on Facebook first? Hey, anyone know what this is? And do, do you think it would have, you know, broken this secret wide open if it happened these days? I, I, that's a hard one because the context of the question, like I think what happened at the time was it was one of the first and the US military didn't know how to deal with it, which is why we got that press release out straight away that they had captured a, a flying saucer, which then was very quickly corrected to no, no, just a weather balloon because they didn't know what else to do or what else to say. 
there doesn't seem to be protocols for it put in place. I suppose, are you talking that if it happened now, it would be the first time it had ever happened? Uh, yeah, I guess in this scenario. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because that, that makes a whole lot of difference. Um, if you're going to, we even let's just say we had the technology now, uh, back then, sorry, that we have now, so Twitter, internet, all that kind of stuff, I think you would have saw it very quickly being shut down because I think you just have to take all things considered that there would be enough control mechanisms put in place that we were more sophisticated than things were back then that nah probably wouldn't have gotten gotten out and even let let's let's flip flip that and say say it happened now anyway you look at the magi incident from last year where there were reports that something crashed in the the forest in brazil um in a small town magi and there were reports of beings being shot there were loud explosions, you know, US military apparently turned up, a lot of helicopters in the area. And again, it was all very quickly shut down. So one, you could look at it and go, maybe it was just a whole lot of nothing blown out of proportion. Or is that just a really good example of how quickly something like that can now be cleaned up and moved on? Yeah, that's a good point. And and I remember as well around that Maje crash, there were a few videos put out rather quickly that were yeah. like, oh, you know, I've taken a video of the saucer and they were completely fake. It was like a plate kind of dug into the ground and shot in a certain yeah. way to make it look, you know, so it makes you wonder. It sounds kind of conspiracy theory-ish, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that these these companies and power structures exist that, that could very easily do this. I think it could go out now and most people wouldn't believe it anyway. It goes back to that that same thing we've talked about a few times now, that what does real look like? So yeah. what would a crashed and you know we've seen the 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 clear footage of the, the saucer stuck in the ground, but it's from the X Files season ten opener. Yeah, yeah. But if something like that went online, it would just be it's from a movie, it's CGI, it's faked, someone put it there, that's it. That's all people have to do. And there's enough doubt because why would it be real? So it would be so hard to get that official confirmation unless it happens somewhere really built up, you know, somewhere in London, somewhere in New York, you know, Chicago, a really, really populated area. Um, so it's a hard one. But Dan, Did we... you, just to touch on that, on. Lou, Lou gave a really good example. Um, he, he said that when he was briefing people on the gimbal video, he would show them a certain video of the Apollo 11 capsule yeah. um, because of the way it moved. And it moves in a really kind of janky way uh obviously because it's in the vacuum of space and they're kind of using the, those thrusters to, to make it move that way but i'd recommend people watch it we'll put a link in the description um because imagine something moving like that in our atmosphere and you're right it just looks fake yeah if you bring in a bubble around some kind of craft that creates that vacuum of space potentially all around it like you say that's why these things would tilt and move and be able to perform right angle turns and, and all that other kind of stuff as well. So yeah, that, that was a really interesting point. And I, I think I shared that video on Twitter um, today, which is no longer today when people watch this. Um, <laughs> people could be watching this in thousands of years. Again, hello to the future. I've said that before. I hope we recorded born. this in 2031. Yeah, oh, don't lie. That really confused people <laughs> now. Uh, but yeah, so we'll get the link in there. Dan can make a note of that one to, to post that. But we did reach out to the listeners on Twitter, on email, on, on the Patreon, and ask for their uh, thoughts on this too. So first off, Mikey. Mikey said, regarding crash retrievals, can we delineate some plausible scenario in which a UFO crash could have been spoofed to mislead a foreign government or spread unrest amongst its people? 
could we already have been victims of such a Trojan horse? What do you think, Dan? I think that's an excellent question. So there's uh, a chapter in Jack Vallée's Stratagem where he he's talking about how the secret keepers kind of kept a secret. And a part of that was to muddy the data, basically. They, they set up a bunch of watchtowers over an area, and then they staged UFO events, including crashes, so that you'd get all these reports and they could study how people are reacting to, you know, a light in the sky, even though it's fake. And it also means then that the people doing the staging are the only ones who know what the actual UFOs are versus, you know, the man-made kind of fakey stuff. Um, so I, I think that has probably happened, um, especially in terms of, you know, distracting countries and giving them something else to worry about at pivotal times. I probably... I, I could imagine scenarios like that happening, you know, during the war or something like that, because they would put up fake tanks and things like that to scare the enemy. And I'd be surprised if it wasn't at least pitched, you know? Well, look what happened when the original broadcast of War of the Worlds, Orson Welles, went out on radio and people thought it was a genuine broadcast of an alien invasion and there was a huge panic. I gotta say, I do think that's a little myth-making. There, there was a, a little, it, I think so. There, there was this story when, when I was studying film where when they showed the first film, everyone in the cinema kind of ran out the cinema. It was just a train coming towards them in a station. And after a bit of digging, I kind of found that, yeah, you know, two or three people panicked, but generally it's a black and white screen and it's flat and people aren't going to think of that as a, as a real train station and run away. So it's just one of these things that over time, I think, just kind of, you know, blow up. Maybe there were a few people that had a really bad reaction, but generally, you know, people I, weren't I'm, in the streets building and looting and things, you know. No, I don't believe that. I'm going to edit that out to make myself look more, more <laughs> uh, correct. But it just shows you, though, that there are there are ways that this could have happened. I, I'm not too sure in terms of ufos crashing but what i do think absolutely is plausible is that us china russia have crashed technology deliberately in other countries or out at sea next to vessels of of the enemy that to deliberately confuse them whether it was a prototype they had no intention of doing you know whether they've crashed something that allows them to spy a little bit potentially wanting it to be captured i would absolutely expect that to happen yeah, yeah. and, and they, they'd be able to see how, you know, what the protocols were in that country for recovery of that kind of nature. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be a great technique and I, I can see it absolutely being used. We, we talked about, was it, and I forget now because so many things came out at the same time in the summer, was it the Omaha or the Russell event that was swarmed by UFOs? Uh, both. It was kind of both. the series, yeah, USS Raphael. Um, yeah, there were, there were a well, whole that, bunch of them yeah, out there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that event, and one of the things that came out about that, which is, is very plausible, was that if that was the US Navy being swarmed by, for example, Chinese or Russian drones, we always have to use these three superpowers, don't we? Then you would just leave them be because what you're doing, both sides are intelligence gathering. Because if you are the enemy, you want to see how they deal with it, what they've got in terms of stopping you doing what you're doing, can they and you both sides can gather data just off the back of observing and it's who blinks first and, so, and those those ships go into dark mode as well so yeah. it's almost like they're aware okay these could be gathering data so let's not react properly to this we'll close down we'll get our snoopy team on deck we'll just watch these things and soak up the intelligence because they want us to react you know get the snoopy team on deck and film that aircraft overhead that looks like a triangular ufo 
or not as it as it was at the time we're not going back to that conversation <laughs> we're not going back there that's we've moved on ufo twitter's got enough to fight about uh dave had a question and uh something that was of course going to come up when discussing crash retrievals i can hear joe Mergia somewhere taking note as we speak do you believe what admiral wilson was told about very little progress being made with the crashed craft or was this just said to make him stop digging? And the truth is, we have made progress and have advanced craft with military capability. So a bit of back engineering there. Eric Davies says no. Ross Coulthard has suggested maybe. That's very non-committal, isn't it? Eric Davies said definitely not. Ross Coulthard said possibly. I, I think we're looking at two answers that are very relative there. You know, Eric Davis is this super smart scientist. And when you ask him, you know, we figured it out, he's going to want the complete picture. Whereas when Ross is looking at it, he's thinking, have we figured any of it out? And, you know, those tidbits he gets kind of confirm, you know what, we, we might have kind of started scratching the surface of this stuff. And we're starting to get to a technological place where we can actually dive deeper. And and this kind of brings me to what I think, you know, we talk about gifting a lot and things like that. Um, and I think it's all to do with something that I just call the march of precision. If you look at human history, Every single bit of progress, you know, the difference between now and, you know, God knows how long ago is precision. It's not just fire. It's not just, you know, engines. It's all about how precise we can be. And we've gone from being able to, you know, build really crappy houses to now being able to build quantum computers that use almost the fabric of the universe. You know, it's we're, we're very, very precise. And if these materials, like they say, are layered bismuth, magnesium, you, you know, all kind of mm -hmm. atomically placed in ways that nature can't do, then I'd say we're kind of getting to the point where we can maybe start thinking about doing that and unlock the deeper secrets of whatever, you know, craft or material we have. You, you've spoken before about kind of taking certain things from the crash retrievals. So though we might not have figured it all out, they might have had fiber optics in the walls. And we've gone, aha, uh -huh, we've seen that in nature. That's a really cool way of passing light. Okay, let's get that to a certain scientists who can you know, put those two puzzle pieces together and voila, it's now out in the world and we're using it. But we're still not as advanced as the aliens or the visitors, I should say. So how likely do you think it is that we've got that Independence Day scenario of you can walk into Area 51 and there is just a big alien craft sitting there that, you know, they managed to turn on and let's forget that they can fly it with a laptop. So I'm going to change one thing about that scenario, just because, you know, if they, if they found an iPhone 50 years ago, they could use it for about two days and then the battery is going to die. Right. So I, I don't necessarily think it's powered on, but I think they might know what it needs it to, to be powered. Um, and that it's sat there complete, you, you know, Ross said that great story of, craft being found engine running with the lights on yeah so you would just keep it you i mean i wouldn't turn that off i would keep that running and just for as long as it could and and we talk about uh, again some of these craft you know power powering them on maybe some of them are in a perpetual state of that is just how they exist it's not a power source potentially for some of them as we understand it and you can't turn it on and off they just exist in that state and that's when you hear sometimes they talk about maybe some of these craft are potentially almost living entities or or machines or mechanisms themselves. You just don't know that that's how something has evolved somewhere. 
to the point that it's it's almost like a biological machine. And this is something I was thinking about the other day. Just I'm going to probably butcher this trying to sound halfway intelligent. But just for example, something like photosynthesis, that something biological can take sunlight and grow and get sustenance from it and, you know, can bloom and turn into flowers and everything else. That's an incredible process for something which is literally you can rip up in your hand. You can pull a, you know, a, a plant out of the ground and destroy it. So what's to say that somewhere else, something else hasn't evolved or developed to the point it's it's more structured than we understand it, that we would call a machine, but has a lot of the signs of, of being a living thing. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made that we are machines, right? I always say when we make the perfect camera, it's going to be like a perfect human eye. You know, we'll, we'll kind of need something to be able to record the data and we might make a, you know, a warm, mushy quantum computer that we end up calling the brain. But we're essentially machines built by nature. So it, it makes you wonder, you know, if, say, in 300 years, if we make a, a craft that thinks, and then we would we wouldn't think of it as a living thing, right? It would just yeah. be a type of bio craft. That would be it. It's the technology we're using. But send it back to now, and we see it as a living thing because we don't understand consciousness. But that that's kind of a running theme that these craft run on consciousness and that, you know, some people uh, with, we'll say, psychic powers, I guess, no other way around it, <laughs> um, have been taken into the program to kind of sit in these machines and try and uh, try and light them up. So it makes me wonder, we, we talk a lot about consciousness being the fabric of the universe and people call it zero point and all these other things. And I wonder if it's just all the same thing and this is how they run. I thought that was a really good point. Um, what I'll do is we, we mentioned this before we recorded, Dan. Nathan sent in a couple of questions, but we're not going to read those because Nathan is from the Calling All Beings podcast. He's a long time listener to our show uh, and our podcast. And we're going to get Nathan on to discuss that with us for, for the main pod as well. So um, that'll be out sometime, hopefully this week or next week. So people keep an eye out for that one. It'll be on the YouTube and available via audio only. But Nathan is a really good guy to chat through this stuff as well. So that'll be a fun conversation. I've I've missed Nathan on some of the as well so i'm excited to finally uh meet him and talk properly yeah he's a good guy he knows his stuff and people should check out that conversation on on calling all beings um james has a question and a point that the crash retrievals is it obvious that these craft and their occupants are always extraterrestrial or do you think that there's the potential of them being future humans piloting time machines like ross Coulthard postulated yes in a nutshell i i mean What's more likely, though, Dan? Everything is possible. Yeah, what, that's it. With this, we can keep going, yeah, it could be, it could be, it could be, and you have to do that. But there also is what's more likely. What do you think, personally? More stars in the universe than urines, uh, than grains of sand on the beach. Each one of those is going to have, you know, or maybe has a solar system around them. Um, we've already identified planets that are better than Earth for uh, for life to develop. I would lean towards the ET kind of hypothesis, but I'm very, very aware that once you get to those speeds, you know, when we're talking warp drives and things like that, we're essentially talking time travel. So the one kind of opens up the other for me. Yeah. And again, it's there's the whole understanding of, of time and time being we have a clock and the clocks go forward and time's a man-made construct. But then, you know what, what if you could go back? But maybe there's another way to look at time as well that we just wouldn't understand it as being time. And that's something that people far, far more intelligent than myself get into conversations about. 
So is that I mean, kind of that, stuff you enjoy watching then? Yeah, I love it. Um, I was just going to say about Tenet, you know, it's really hard to get your head around, but I'd recommend people just search on YouTube for, you know, they, there are people that kind of break it all down and you understand the intricacies of it and it breaks your head a bit, but that's kind of because we experience time in a linear fashion. And I think it's really interesting to try and explore that wider idea. After the sixth time I had watched it, Dan, and still messaged you back and forward, that I think I've got about 70% of the movie now, <laughs> uh, which I really enjoy it. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's a bit of a head head mess. A um, couple more questions from you folks. Uh, John Jr., what are your thoughts on gifting? Dan, you mentioned this earlier in regards to crash retrievals. Could the crashes have been part of a larger plan to gift humanity with advanced technology? I, I think gifting is a really interesting part of the kind of the subtle influence of the phenomena why why would it have the intent to do that to i mean that that's we're, we're talking the intent of the visitors here so that's anyone's guess really but but for me i i think and i'm going to use the term raising consciousness here and i don't mean it in a kind of you know you're going to become like goku and go flying and do energy beams and stuff i just mean it's going to start making you think in a different way. You know, before you find a UFO sat there and have that confirmation that you're not alone, we're all pretty, you know, wrapped up in the events of the world because that's our local area. And, and we see ourselves a certain way. But then when you find out that you're not alone, you, you kind of do what Ronald Reagan did and wonder, you know, if these guys came here, would we all suddenly be united as a planet and we'd see ourselves in a completely different way? I, I think... You, you'd kind of want to develop a species to that point before landing and saying hi, especially if they're as trigger happy as some of the countries here are. And I think what you've got to, again, think of, and this is where my mind goes a bit mad in all sorts of directions with this kind of stuff, is if you are one of these species or entities, whether it's dimensional or from other planets or whatever it might be, there has to be an assumed knowledge of our structure and hierarchy in terms of they have world leaders and a military because you, you crash a craft then in a well say say gifting a craft in a welsh farmer's field why that farmer's field is it a case of we will just put it somewhere and they will find it eventually in terms of either archaeological find uh, not necessarily right there and then would they necessarily have any concept of the danger it might pose to people. We've just heard as part of the Skinwalker Ranch book that's come out, you know, some of these orbs have flown through people and caused some really serious illnesses. But while that is dangerous and harmful to us as a species, they may not know that that is a consequence or it might not even register with them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to think that by now they've at least noticed there are a few people scream when they're near. Um, and they, there have been multiple cases over the past 70, 80 years of... of you know people being harmed by this stuff um because they get too near to operating craft or you know there are effects afterwards that come with the hitchhiker effects and things like that and people are mentally damaged um so i i think i would agree with you there that they they don't quite know what they're doing to us i think um and and we're we're a little bit i said this the other week as well we're a little bit like moths to a flame you know and Dan, you mentioned about, you know, they should recognise people scream when they get near, but then people scream down the front of a Justin Bieber concert. So we're a very confusing species because, oh, yeah, true. look, they seem very happy. They've paid for this experience. So let's go and abduct them because they scream when we do that. So they must be happy and, that we're doing and, it. 
there's also an assumption there on my part that they can experience or see the sound waves that we emit when we do that and they might not so yeah i mean when you pull grass out the ground it might scream or make some kind of noise but you don't notice it you just do it so so yeah poor grass i can't believe it was grass um one last question. We'll go very quickly before we finish off with a little bit of footage review, which is relevant to this. Um, hopefully you've all stuck around for this. Again, thanks to everyone in the chat. It's always good to see people getting involved. Um, what will we go with? Okay, so last one. It's a nice one to finish on, I think. And we've kept every, all the other questions for the, the main podcast. Dan, if there are, this is from Mark, if there are as many crashes as reported, there must be hundreds or thousands of service members who have been involved at some level. Only a few dubious accounts have ever been told. Why aren't more coming forward? Where are the memoirs or deathbed confessions? Well, we, we've had several deathbed confessions, right? But it, it's hard to kind of verify and follow up when the person's gone, unfortunately. You know, we had Nat Kobitz uh, from Ross's book recently. Uh, yeah. there, there have been plenty in the past. Um, and it, it's, it's super hard to differentiate. But I'd simply point back to the Manhattan Project. You know, they kept a really tight lid on that until they were ready to reveal it. Um, we've had the same thing happen over the years with things like, you know, stealth bombers being developed. And I have no doubt that there are things being developed that people just don't know. We, we're going through a bit of a learn in this community as to what classifications there are, what they enable people to access, so on and so forth. and. I mean, even even at Lou's level, and we're not talking now, you know, the super black program, secret program that we all suspect exists. We're talking about the the one that's now public. Um, Lou's classifications were insane. His access was insane. And still, he couldn't get access to these special programs. So you got to wonder how long they're buried, what they have to hold over people. Um, and also, I think some people will just be attracted to... to kind of having a secret that no one else has you know do you not think as well it'd be very easy for many of these these teams who deal with this kind of stuff that they would be tasked with say there were potential you know secret space programs um or just generally secret military technology that does go wrong from time to time that they recover crash satellites they would be told it's a secret chinese satellite it is some kind of russian uh, craft that has been downed go and collect it get rid of it and you know what? They might have suspicions, but if you're not of the mindset of aliens, UFOs, and spaceships, then they just do what they're told. They clean it up. They put it away. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. No, and questions aren't asked. We we know that other countries have sent debris to Wright Patterson because uh, that's where the technology kind of research department is. Um, and yeah, I think it was Canada, and it was a down satellite in the end. But it just goes to show that other countries are even feeding America this stuff. America don't even necessarily have to fly out a secret team to gather it. Yeah. And Dan, a few people asked us to round off. Uh, uh, we're asking for each week footage to review. So let us know what you think we should talk about on the pod. We'll share the video. Thanks to everyone who has done that so far. Um, Skinny Bob is one that comes up as a piece of footage that's very controversial. A lot of people think it is CGI or faked, and there are as many people who seem to think it could be genuine. So I'm going to share that now, and we'll have a little look at, at this piece of footage. Now, I've got it starting kind of round about here. What are, what's your thoughts on the skinny bob footage, Dan, that's playing? It's, I mean, my first thoughts is, is if it's fake, it's really well done. You know, a lot of people have said it's puppets, it's CGI. Uh, there, there are not a lot of analysis by CGI guys you can watch. 
And there's some really strange frame rate issues with a lot of this footage that lead me to suspect that maybe there's something spliced in here that isn't faked. Do you think there's the potential that part of this is faked, but some of it's real? And it's that thing that we've mentioned before that to make something seem dubious, all you have to do is put a little seed of doubt into it. Yeah. And a very true story can suddenly become pure nonsense. Let, think, think about what happened with that alien autopsy. You know, a lot. there was a big hoo-ha when it was released. Over the years, that person has come forward and said it was nonsense, but that they had a certain frame that they were trying to mimic and kind of get out to the public. Mm -hmm. This has been out for ages, and we don't have anything like that for this. It's still a mystery. It's the stereotypical look that you expect. The big head, the large black kind of gaping holes almost, as we can see in the video for eyes. The, the Steve Jobs turtleneck, because he wasn't from here. <laughs> yeah, he's got the Steve Jobs turtleneck. <laughs> it's... It's what we kind of come to expect from the Roswell crashes that we hear about, that there were a, a graze recovered, they had kind of bodysuits on, and there were survivors. And then here we go, here's footage of what people would expect. Hand on heart, it looks really good. I, I can't say that it doesn't look a little CGI-esque, but again, I've got to caveat that with my, my get-out-of-jail card of we don't know what real would look like. And I would really love to get some serious people such as a Lou Elizondo, a Chris Mellon, or others like that, a Jacques Vallée, to sit, look at this footage and go, what do you really think of this? Not that they would know it was genuine or not, but do they think this would be real or not? I, I would lean towards CGI, but again, I'm no expert in what may or may not be, be good about this particular piece of footage. For, for me, it's kind of how undramatic the footage is as well. Yeah. You know, we're not watching a craft zip off. We're not watching crazy maneuvers. We're either watching a fake and it's CGI and a dude in a suit or it's someone and, and they've made a decision to just not make it very fanciful. You know, uh, I, I saw a video on it was on TikTok the other day and it was just an interview between two people. Um, and the one person said, show us how you blink. And then the woman blinked. And the person said, no, not that way. Show us the other way. And it turned out that this was a... Uh, what if there was an interview with an alien and then the woman blinked sideways and it was really undramatic just you know there wasn't any crazy music or anything like that and when I watched it I thought this is kind of how it would be but this looks really fake and I, I can't get my head around how I deal with it if this was actually put in front of me you know I, I think I'd need someone like Lou to put it in front of me and say this is real sit here until you get that through your head because if I saw it on YouTube I think I'd struggle Absolutely. Listen, folks, that's all we've got time for this week on KGRA Digital Broadcasting. You can check out the main podcast uh, available on YouTube now and also Apple, Spotify, however you listen to podcasts. Our interview with Paolo Gizzardi, who is the Italian representative for ICER, International Coalition of Extraterrestrial Research. He also works for the Italian Ministry for Foreign Affairs. Really interesting guy. And he was talking about Project Titan, which is being put forward as a motion to the UN through the, the vehicle of San Marino, um, the, the country. So that was a really interesting chat. A lot of great feedback on that as well. Thanks to everyone who's checked that out. Next week's show on the main podcast should be the full interview you've heard bits of. It's actually a, a fresh original interview. It's not the same one uh, with Graham Rendell. That may be moved to accommodate something else that probably is coming up instead. Graham won't mind us bumping him by a week, um, but it's one that is relevant right now. 
to do with a certain book that's come out. So we'll see if that one comes up. That'll be getting that'll be getting uh, priority to go straight out. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for joining are you, are you us. Are getting J.K. Rowling? Is she doing a new Harry Potter book? No, I hope not because you know they, <laughs> they, they milked that for all it was worth. Um, but it's another type of wizard. No, it's not. It's, I can't even say that. People will start to summarize. But thanks to everyone <laughs> in the chat. Thanks for checking us out. Thanks to KGRA for hosting us. And folks, if you want to go back and watch the archive, you can do so on KGRA. But we're going to start uploading those a week or so delayed on the main YouTube channel as well. So thank you very much for checking us out. Dan, have a good evening. You too, and thank you to everyone in the chat and for, for watching. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet, and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad-free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little red. Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should. Because it doesn't really scare me.